This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. The term medical misogyny may sound strange, unless you've experienced it firsthand. My name's Edith Hill. I'm 27 years old. I'm a PhD candidate living in Adelaide, and my pronouns are she, her. So the first time I experienced medical misogyny, I was 14 years old. I went into the emergency room in a hospital in Adelaide and I presented with extreme pain in my abdomen and I was doubled over and vomiting. The first thing that I got from the doctors was obviously asking if I was pregnant and I was 14 and horrified at this question. I told them that I wasn't pregnant, there was no chance I could be pregnant. Um, They asked my mum to leave the room and asked me again. I again told them there was no chance I could be pregnant and they proceeded to take me into another room where I needed to take a pregnancy test so they could double check, triple check that I was indeed not pregnant and of course I wasn't. (laughs) They eventually thought it was potentially appendicitis and then got a diagnosis in another way that had nothing to do with my menstruation, fertility or potential pregnancies. (laughs) We asked you to share your experiences with medical misogyny and you told us about not being believed, being incorrectly diagnosed and staying in pain for longer than you needed to. Some women, like Edith, said they'd experienced this more than once. The second time I experienced medical misogyny, I was 22 years old. I'd been driving to my auntie's house and I had to pull over because I was like violently shaking all of a sudden. I ended up going into the emergency room um, with a lot of pain and with these shakes and was just absolutely terrified of what could be going on. And the response I was met with was, one, are you having a panic attack? Are you having a bit of a, a bit of a sad day? And two, is there any chance that you are pregnant? <laughs> so I was eventually discharged and I had to come back the next day because I was still having the same symptoms of a lot of pain and the violent shaking that was out of my control. These kinds of experiences aren't uncommon. Studies show that women wait longer for pain medication than men. They're more likely to have their heart disease misdiagnosed than men. In fact, women wait longer to be diagnosed with 700 different diseases. And I eventually got seen by another doctor who finally listened to me and finally read my chart and saw my history with kidney problems. Eventually, I was given another urine test, not for pregnancy, but with that test they saw that I had a urinary tract infection that had spread and at the point I was at then um, had gone septic. The preoccupation with the idea that I could have been pregnant and taking a urine sample to test for pregnancy and nothing else meant that my condition worsened. I completely understand why doctors need to do these tests and ask questions about pregnancy, especially when someone may present to the emergency room with those symptoms and they might not be in a position where they can tell the truth. So I understand why they need to confirm these things. But for me, it was a really early lesson that when I presented with pain or with certain symptoms, that the first thought that anyone will have is, is she pregnant? Rather than listening to the pains and the other things that I was experiencing and trying to address those problems instead. Next month, Labor's newly formed National Women's Health Council will meet for the first time to set priorities for addressing medical misogyny in the healthcare system. Today, what's driving medical misogyny and the Labor government's plan to address it? 
It's Tuesday, the 31st of January. Gabrielle, your book, Pain and Prejudice, looks at how the medical system ignores women. So what is medical misogyny? Almost everything we know about human health comes from the study of men and male animals. Gabrielle Jackson is the Associate Editor of Audio and Visual at Guardian Australia. Medical misogyny doesn't mean doctors hate women. It means that the entire canon of medical knowledge that we possess is based on men. And not just any man, a cis white man. (laughs) There is so much disease that occurs in other people in this world that we really know nothing about. And doctors aren't even trained to know that this huge knowledge gap exists. And what are some examples of this knowledge gap in medicine? There are a lot of diseases and conditions that predominantly or solely affect women, and almost all of them have not been very well studied. Autoimmune conditions are one of them. I have endometriosis and adenomyosis, so I talk about that a lot. But it's also diseases. Migraine was once considered to be hysterical. More women get that. Chronic fatigue syndrome, vulvodynia, obviously, because, you know, women have vulvas and some gender diverse people. Mm. And so what happens here is a lot of these diseases, you know, haven't really been studied. Often they have very generalised symptoms, fatigue, brain fog, pain, inflammation, headaches. It's very hard to treat some of these symptoms. You may get one under control, but then the other springs up and... They're really left on a sorry heap with no treatment options. So it's kind of like trial and error. And it just leaves a whole bunch of patients with no very good options to improve their quality of life. And it's really harmful to people who have to live in pain with these other symptoms and not have anyone believe them. You know, they're often called difficult patients or heart sink patients they have this reputation for being crazy. Well, yeah, I can tell you, living in pain and not being believed does make you crazy. <laughs> it makes you incredibly difficult. And you do get angry at receptionists or doctors or people who are treating you like you're making things up. It's also incredibly powerful to have a diagnosis and to be told it's not in your head, that you are suffering and there is a reason for it. How many women say that they've experienced some form of medical misogyny in their own lives? Or is it impossible to know because women just don't self-identify because this term isn't sort of widely understood? Look, there are definitely people who wouldn't have called their experience with the medical profession medical misogyny, but might call it that now. There are a wealth of studies that does prove it exists almost half of women who are eventually diagnosed with an autoimmune disease will at one stage be told by a doctor that it's all in their head or they're too concerned about their health. Mm. There are so many studies that prove that women are not women's pain is not taken more seriously. There was this excellent study in the 90s called The Girl Who Cried Pain by Diane Hoffman and Anita Tarzian. They quote studies that found women are more likely to be given sedatives for pain and men are more likely to be given strong painkillers. They found that among cancer and AIDS patients, women's pain was more likely to be undertreated than men's. And we also know that women with chest pain are less likely to be admitted to hospital. 
Today, medical and scientific communities continue to be dominated by men. So what do we miss out on as a result of that bias? Yes, that's true. Medical and scientific communities are still dominated by men, but it's changing. And there are way more women going into medicine and science today. But we still have the whole history of medical knowledge being made by men for men. So there's still a lot of missing knowledge. That means just having a few more women as doctors is not going to change everything. The other thing is because most of the research has been, money has been given out by men and it's been men who are coming up with research grants, there's just a lot that hasn't been studied. For example, the uterus or the womb, as it's more commonly known, is this extraordinary organ which regenerates its lining every single month. And that lining grows its own blood vessels. It includes immune cells. It's really extraordinary and it's only really been studied for its regenerative capabilities in the last decade or so. I mean, I think that's amazing. How do women tend to deal with this problem when they are confronted with it? In many different ways, but I want to start by saying that we shouldn't be asking women to change their behaviour to deal with medical misogyny. Women are always asked to change their behaviour to deal with sexism in our institutions, and we should be changing medicine to treat women better. Having said that, um, you know, I have heard from many women and I know myself that finding a doctor who you trust is really important and many women have had that experience. They recognise they're not being believed. They go and find someone who believes them. They develop a long-term relationship with that person and that can be really life-changing. And more and more research shows that when a person has a doctor who they trust, lots of symptoms, including pain, is reduced. So that's great. Having said that, a lot of women don't have that opportunity. Um, You know, it can be really difficult for women in rural or regional communities. It can be very difficult for Indigenous women to build trust in a white institution like medicine. And sometimes they live without medical help. Sometimes they live for years and years with pain. Their quality of life is severely reduced and they never actually get the help that they need. Um, So my name's Ruby. I'm 28 and I live in Sydney and I use she, her pronouns. In around 2016 or 2017, I went to my GP initially because I had large sheets of my skin in my mouth peeling off. Um, And when I went, um, she asked about other symptoms and I brought up, you know, stomach pain that I was having, rashes that I would get on my body and joint and muscle pain that I was experiencing. And she suggested I should see an immunologist. The immunologist tested for lupus and a bunch of other things and everything came back negative. When I went back to the um, immunologist, they kind of said, uh, what you do have is fibromyalgia and undiagnosed STD. And I explained to, to the doctor that I actually very recently had an STD screening and it was clear there's no way that I would have contracted one since. It kind of made me feel like I was crazy, like they thought I was crazy, like there's nothing wrong with you, you have an STD, like go away. My symptoms started to get a lot worse, particularly like the frequency that I was having to use the toilet. It was like, you know, quite hard being at work. So I decided to go to the doctor. 
um, and they referred me to a gastroenterologist, which was the right doctor, thankfully. I finally got a diagnosis of Crohn's disease. I feel like I'm definitely less confident in asserting myself in health care settings. Like I feel like I can't actually say how I'm feeling because I don't want to come across as dramatic or, I don't know, exaggerating. So what have women's health advocacy groups been calling for to try to reduce the level of medical misogyny? What really needs to happen is more research. And that's a hard thing to say because research is costly and it takes a long time to filter through. But knowing that this huge knowledge gap exists, we have to address it. There has to be designated funding to study diseases that affect women and gender diverse people. There has to be education among medical professionals that this problem exists because doctors and even nurses and other allied health professionals are not taught that all their medical knowledge is based on the study of men and male animals. So they often don't know that the reason they have a whole bunch of women in their waiting room with problems that they can't fix, they don't know it's because medicine has never studied those problems. Mm. So understanding the knowledge gap is really important for doctors. And it's also important to note, I suppose, that it's not just the fault of male doctors. Female doctors can also potentially misdiagnose or mistreat. Yeah, they do, Jane. Like, I really want to be clear that I'm not bashing doctors. I don't think doctors are terrible people. I think it's really important to remember that medical misogyny is not about doctors hating women. It's not about purposefully mistreating them. It's about an institution that doesn't have the knowledge of women it needs. Another person who spoke with us about their experience with medical misogyny is Jessica Eisen. She's a postdoctoral research fellow at the Judith Lumley Centre at La Trobe University. For this episode, she spoke with producer Camilla Hannon. Yeah, so I have a long history in terms of my endometriosis. Since menstruating, I've had really painful periods. Um, I've been told that that's just what women go through and often would end up in bed for one to three days when I'd have my period, tried a range of different strategies, but was continuously brushed off by doctors, gaslit by doctors, given a range of different diagnoses, including irritable bowel syndrome, which is a chronic misdiagnosis for women and people with uteruses who have endometriosis. So it all kind of came to a head about two years ago, which resulted in me basically in pretty extreme agony. Like I couldn't sit down for like long periods. I couldn't bend over. I had pretty extreme rectal pain, which is like I can only describe as like a white hot knife being stabbed up your rectum. And then all through my pelvis was pretty extreme pain. And from that, the flow on effects are pretty intense anxiety, intense mental health outcomes. At one point in that, I did go to the hospital. The hospital basically, I think, thought that I was lying and trying to get access to different drugs. And it's really hard to advocate for yourself when you're in that position. And at the the hospital, I got two Panadol because I was crying in the fetal position. Keep in mind that endometriosis is one of the top 10 most painful conditions you have. Took me 20 years to get an endometriosis diagnosis. 
Next, the Assistant Minister for Health and Aged Care on how the Albanese government plans to address medical misogyny. In December last year, the Labor government announced plans to establish a National Women's Health Advisory Council to try and examine the stark differences in health outcomes for women and gender-diverse people. This advisory council aims to provide policy recommendations and clinical advice guided by experts and people in the community with lived experience of medical misogyny. There's no direct government funding that's been set aside for the council. It'll receive administrative support from the Department of Health, and they have about one point $6 million that they'll be able to spend on community consultations over the next three years. The council's made up of 16 members, all volunteers, who include a range of women's health advocates and researchers, and they'll meet for the first time on the 20th of February. Hi, can you hear me okay? The Assistant Minister for Health and Aged Care, Jed Carney, is the chair of the council. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jane. Thank you for your time and interest in this. We're thrilled. I've just noted the time, so I'm going to rip through a bunch of questions about the council, if that's okay. Um, You'll be the inaugural chair of the National Council. How will it work to address medical misogyny? In the very first meeting, we're going to set priorities. We have a wonderful group of people. We have experts in the field and we have women from representing um, diverse, really a diverse group um, of our community. And I see it as my role as, number one, bringing that group of people together and starting that conversation but also then trying to drive policy change, which I think is going to be the hard part. So there's policy change in specific areas where we know there are differences between the sexes in health outcomes. But I don't want to lose any sort of um, emphasis or focus on the systemic issues. I want to do a real gap analysis about the research, about clinical guidelines, about how women access medical care for these, and of course, women's experiences. So um, coming out of the first meeting will be a really good meaty body of work, I hope, that will set the course for the rest of the three years that the, the body will be in train and to really give me, as the responsible minister and my colleagues in the health portfolio, some very clear direction about what needs to be done to both direct cultural change and to help women get the best possible care that they can and to close that gap between outcomes um, for men and women. The council's members, as you've mentioned, are made up of a range of people from different women's health groups, different areas of research. How many of them have experienced medical misogyny themselves? So whilst I can't exactly tell you whether or not they've had personal experiences, I'm sure they have. They've certainly worked in this field for a long, long time and will be able to advise me and the government um, on some really good meaty changes that we can make. For example, Dr Sue Matthews is the Chief Executive Officer of the Women's Hospital here. Um, Professor Zoe Weiner um, has written many, many papers on this issue. Um, she's an outstanding academic and, um, and a practitioner. She herself is a doctor. She's very involved in the health system. Geeta Mishra from the Longitudinal Study on Women's Health. I think the stories that she has gathered in her research will be just so um, helpful and fruitful. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of hope for this council, but there are also many concerns that despite its good intentions, without commitment to funding over a long period, it won't be effective to address something as large as medical misogyny. Can you tell me how much funding the council will receive over the next three years? 
I can't tell you exactly the dollar figure, but we do have funding to meet for three years. So basically, Jane, the funding is really for the body to come together and to do our work, um, to look at the research, to have those discussions, to hear from the experts, to hear from the community. Once we've done the work of the council, it will be up to the government and state governments and local governments and our health sectors uh, to really pick up the advice and the work. This is really about system change. It's about attitude change. It's about cultural change. And yes, there will be some very practical things that we can do, like rewrite guidelines, direct research, um, do gaps analysis on data, and that will come down the track when we have um, the recommendations from the council. One of the big problems we know in medical misogyny is that research for conditions that disproportionately affect women that we've been talking about today are vastly underfunded. What power will the council have to influence this in the future? We do have the National Women's Health Strategy, which the council will be monitoring that. There's some great things in there, which include research into women's health issues. And so we will be um, putting some KPIs against that and really monitoring the outcomes of that. Is it effective? Is it working? What is working? What isn't working? How do we um, scale up those things that are working? So really watching what's happening in the health system and where we're having some success and making sure that that's replicated across the health system. You've also said that the council aims to address intersectional discrimination in the health system. So we're talking about how these disadvantages for women compound for people of colour and different sexualities. And that's a huge task to take on, on top of all that we've discussed. How, How will you and the council, I suppose, balance these different priorities against each other? I'm hoping by having such diverse membership on the council that there will be an overlay of every strategy, every uh, everything that we examine and look at and delve into and develop a strategy for. So if you're working on example, well, let's say menopause, okay, and one of the issues is really heavy bleeding uh, that some women's experiencing, which is actually a personal experience of mine. What are the gap analysis? How hard is it? You, and, and to make sure that the voices of all those Um, diverse um, communities are heard. So how hard is it for a migrant woman to present to a doctor and discuss the issue of heavy periods? How can we make that easier for her? Mm. Um, We are discussing strategies and outcomes that all of these overlays will be thought about because their voices will be at the table. I'm wondering what you mean by overlay. Do you mean that um, there will be some of that represented? I mean, I note that out of the 16 members on the council, there's two who are representing Indigenous and culturally diverse groups, one representing women with disabilities. You have special advisors in the LGBTI community and uh, also another in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. I'm just wondering, I suppose, given it has to deal with so many things, whether this might be lost in the mix. I will do my very best not to let it get lost. I've been really thoughtful about who I've asked to be on the council and as special advisors, and they're great people. They are not quiet people. (laughs) I guess I can say to anybody who's listening out there, if you think I'm losing my way, let me know. (laughs) Speak up, call out, say, hey, Jed. I really want this to be as consultative and grassroots as I possibly can. Can an advisory council in Australia really make a difference, do you think, and in what way? Look, I think they can. 
Um, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't think. And it is a massive problem. And as I think I've said before, I feel like I'm putting my shoulder up against a juggernaut and trying to change direction. I really do feel that. But you have to start somewhere. You can't throw your hands up and say it's all too hard. You can't do that. You've got to try to do something. And I think this is a really practical way for me as a federal um, assistant minister to try to track a path through this. It won't change everything overnight. I've got three years to to really um, set a path and I hope that the council will continue beyond that. I feel like this is the start mm. and I really think that um, it will make a difference. It will. You know, in a year's time and also in three years' time, what would success look like to you for this council and, and also what would failure look like for you? Failure would look like that there's been no change at all, that um, we're still having, uh, you know, eight years to be diagnosed with endometriosis. We're still having women discounted at hospitals for their shortness of breath and and symptoms of um, heart attacks and still dying. If none of that, you know, if none of the statistics where women do worse out of the health system, if none of that data has changed, then I will be disappointed. But if we set priorities and we say as a council, we would like to make sure that the guidelines for you know, X, Y and Z condition have been changed and every ED and every GP knows about them and we start to see some benefits, that would be a win for me. That was Jed Carney, the Assistant Minister for Health and Aged Care and Chair of the National Women's Health Advisory Council. Earlier, you also heard from Gabrielle Jackson, author of Pain and Prejudice and Associate Editor of Audio and Visual here at Guardian Australia. Special thanks to the many people who responded to our call out for stories on Twitter. Thank you for sharing your personal experiences with the healthcare system with us. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, Ellen Liebeter, Alison Chan, Camilla Hannon and myself. Joe Koning did the sound design and mixing. Our theme music is by Joe Koning and the executive producer for this episode was Molly Glassy. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.